Chapter Twenty Five of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five. Revelations. Spargo turned on his disreputable and dissolute companion with all his journalistic energies and instincts roused. He had not been sure, since entering the King of Madagascar, that he was going to hear anything material to the Middle Temple murder. He had more than once feared that this old gin-drinking harridan was deceiving him, for the purpose of extracting drink and money from him. But now, at the mere prospect of getting important information from her, he forgot all about Mother Gutch's unfortunate propensities, evil eyes, and sudden face. He only saw in her somebody who could tell him something. He turned on her eagerly. "'You say that John Maitland's son didn't die?' he exclaimed. "'The boy did not die,' replied Mother Gutch. "'And that you know where he is?' asked Spargo. Mother Gutch shook her head. "'I didn't say that I know where he is, young man,' she replied. "'I said I knew what she did with him.' "'What then?' demanded Spargo. Mother Gutch drew herself up in a vast assumption of dignity, and favoured Spargo with a look. "'That's the secret, young man,' she said. "'I'm willing to sell that secret, but not for two half-sovereigns and two or three drops of cold gin. "'If Maitland left all that money you told Jane Bayliss of, when I was listening to you from behind the hedge, my secret's worth something.' Spargo suddenly remembered his bit of bluff to Miss Bayliss. Here was an unexpected result of it. "'Nobody but me can help you trace Maitland's boy,' continued Mother Gutch, "'and I shall expect to be paid accordingly. That's plain language, young man.' Spargo considered the situation in silence for a minute or two. Could this wretched, bibulous old woman really be in possession of a secret— which would lead to the solving of the mystery of the Middle Temple murder. Well, it would be a fine thing for the watchman if the clearing up of everything came through one of its men. And the watchman was noted for being generous even to extravagance in laying out money on all sorts of objects. It had spent money, like water, on much less serious matters than this. "'How much do you want for your secret?' he suddenly asked, turning to his companion. Mother Gutch began to smooth out a pleat in her gown. It was really wonderful to Spargo to find how very sober and normal this old harridan had become. He did not understand that her nerves had been all a-quiver and on edge when he first met her, and that a resort to her favourite form of alcohol in liberal quantity had calmed her and quickened them. Secretly he was regarding her with astonishment as the most extraordinary old person he had ever met and he was almost afraid of her as he waited for her decision. At last Mother Gutch spoke. "'Well, young man,' she said, "'having considered matters, and having a right to look well to myself, I think that what I should prefer to have would be one of those annuities, a nice, comfortable annuity, paid weekly, none of your monthlies or quarterlies, but regular and punctual, every Saturday morning.' or Monday morning, as was convenient to the parties concerned. 
but punctual and regular i know a good many ladies in my sphere of life as enjoys annuities and it's a great comfort to have em paid weekly it occurred to spargo that mrs gutch would probably get rid of her weekly doll on the day it was paid whether that happened to be monday or saturday but that after all was no concern of his so he came back to first principles even now you haven't said how much he remarked three pound a week replied mother gutch and cheap too spargo thought hard for two minutes the secret might might lead to something this wretched old woman would probably drink herself to death within a year or two anyhow a few hundreds of pounds was nothing to the watchman he glanced at his watch at that hour for the next hour the great man of the watchman would be at his office he jumped to his feet suddenly resolved and alert here i'll take you to see my principals he said we'll run along in a taxicab with all the pleasure in the world young man replied mother gutch when you've given me that other half-sovereign as for principals i'd far rather talk business with masters than with men though i mean no disrespect to you spargo feeling that he was in for it handed over the second half-sovereign and busied himself in ordering a taxicab but when that came round he had to wait while mother gutch consumed a third glass of gin and purchased a flask of the same beverage to put in her pocket at last he got her off and in due course to the watchman office where the hall porter and the messenger boys stared at her in amazement well used as they were to seeing strange folks and he got her to his own room and locked her in and then he sought the presence of the mighty what spargo said to his editor and to the great man who controlled the fortunes and workings of the watchman he never knew it was probably fortunate for him that they were both thoroughly conversant with the facts of the middle temple murder and saw that there might be an advantage in securing the revelations of which spargo had got the conditional promise at any rate they accompanied spargo to his room intent on seeing hearing and bargaining with the lady he had locked up there spargo's room smelt heavily of unsweetened gin but mother gutch was soberer than ever she insisted on being introduced to proprietor and editor in due and proper form and in discussing terms with them before going into any further particulars the editor was all for temporizing with her until something could be done to find out what likelihood of truth there was in her but the proprietor after sizing her up in his own shrewd fashion took his two companions out of the room we'll hear what the old woman has to say on her own terms he said she may have something to tell us that is really of the greatest importance in this case she certainly has something to tell and as spargo says she'll probably drink herself to death in about as short a time as possible come back let's hear her story and they turned to the gin-scented atmosphere and a formal document was drawn out by which the proprietor of the watchman bound himself to pay mrs gutch the sum of three pounds a week for life mrs gutch insisting on the insertion of the words every saturday morning punctual and regular and then mrs gutch was invited to tell her tale and mrs gutch settled herself to do so 
and Spargo prepared to take it down, word for word. "'Which the story, as that young man called it, is not so long as a monkey's tail, nor so short as a manx's cat's gentleman,' said Mrs. Gutch, "'but full of meat as an egg.' now you see when that maitland affair at market milcaster came off i was housekeeper to miss jane bayliss at brighton she kept a boarding-house there in kemp town and close to the sea-front and a very good thing she made out of it and had saved a nice bit and having like her sister mrs maitland had a little fortune left her by her father as was at one time a publican here in london she had a good lump of money and all that money was in this here Maitland's hands, every penny. I very well remember the day when the news came about that affair of Maitland robbing the bank. Miss Bayliss, she was like a mad thing when she saw it in the paper, and before she'd seen it an hour she was off to Market Milcaster. I went up to the station with her, and she told me then before she got in the train that Maitland had all her fortune and her savings, and her sisters, his wife's, too, and that she feared all would be lost. Mrs. Maitland was then dead, observed Spargo, without looking up from his writing-block. She was, young man, and a good thing, too, continued Mrs. Gutch. Well, away went Miss Bayliss, and no more did I hear or see for nearly a week, and then back she comes and brings a little boy with her, which was Maitland's, and she told me that night— that she'd lost every penny she had in the world, and that her sister's money, what ought to have been the child's, was gone too, and she said her say about Maitland. However, she saw well to that child. Nobody could have seen better. And very soon after, when Maitland was sent to prison for ten years, her and me talked about things. "'What's the use?' says I to her. "'of your letting yourself get so fond of that child "'and looking after it as you do, "'and educating it, and so on,' I says. "'Why not?' says she. "'Tisn't yours,' I says. "'You haven't no right to it,' I says. "'As soon as ever its father comes out,' says I, "'he'll come and claim it, "'and you can't do nothing to stop him.' "'Well, gentlemen, if you'll believe me, "'never did I see a woman look as she did "'when I says all that.' and she up and swore that Maitland should never see or touch the child again, not under no circumstances whatever. Mrs. Gutch paused to take a little refreshment from her pocket-flask, with an apologetic remark as to the state of her heart. She resumed presently, apparently refreshed. Well, gentlemen, that notion about Maitland's taking the child away from her seemed to get on her mind, and she used to talk to me at times about it, always saying the same thing, that Maitland should never have him. And one day she told me she was going to London to see lawyers about it, and she went, and she came back, seeming more satisfied. And a day or two afterwards there came a gentleman who looked like a lawyer, and he stopped a day or two, and he came again and again, until one day she came to me and she says, "'You don't know who that gentleman is that's come so much lately,' she says. "'Not I,' I says, "'unless he's after you.' "'After me,' she says, tossing her head. "'That's the gentleman that ought to have married my poor sister "'if that scoundrel Maitland hadn't tricked her into throwing him over.' 
"'You don't say so,' I says. "'Then by rights he ought to have been the child's pa.' "'He's going to be a father to the boy,' she says. "'He's going to take him and educate him in the highest fashion "'and make a gentleman of him,' she says, "'for his mother's sake.' "'Mercy on us,' says I. "'What'll Maitland say when he comes for him?' "'Maitland'll never come for him,' she says, "'for I'm going to leave here.' and the boy'll be gone before then. This is all being done, she said, so that the child'll never know his father's shame. He'll never know who his father was. And true enough, the boy was taken away, but Maitland came before she'd gone, and she told him the child was dead, and I never seen a man so cut up. However, that wasn't no concern of mine. And so there's so much of the secret, gentlemen, and i would like to know if i ain't giving good value very good said the proprietor go on but spargo intervened did you ever hear the name of the gentleman who took the boy away he asked yes i did replied mrs gutch of course i did which it was elphick End of chapter twenty five Chapter Twenty Six of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six. Still silent, Spargo dropped his pen on the desk before him with a sharp clatter that made Mrs. Gutch jump. A steady devotion to the bottle had made her nerves to be none of the strongest, and she looked at the startler of them with angry malevolence. "'Don't do that again, young man,' she exclaimed sharply. "'I can't bear to be jumped out of my skin, and it's bad manners. "'I observed that the gentleman's name was Elphick.' Spargo contrived to get in a glance at his proprietor and his editor, a glance which came near to being a wink. "'Just so, Elphick,' he said. "'A law gentleman, I think you said, Mrs. Gutch?' "'I said.' answered mrs gutch as how he looked like a lawyer gentleman and since you're so particular young man though i wasn't addressing you but your principles he was a lawyer gentleman one of the sort that wears wigs and gowns ain't i seen his picture in jane bayliss's room at the boarding-house where you saw her this morning elderly man asked spargo elderly he will be now replied the informant but when he took the boy away he was a middle-aged man about his age she added pointing to the editor in a fashion which made that worthy man wince and the proprietor desire to laugh unconsumedly and not so very unlike him neither being one as had no hair on his face ah said spargo and where did this mr elphick take the boy mrs gutch but mrs gutch shook her head ain't no idea she said he took him then as i told you maitland came and jane bayliss told him that the boy was dead and after that she never even told me anything about the boy she kept a tight tongue once or twice i asked her and she said never you mind she says he's all right for life if he lives to be as old as methuselah and she never said more and i never said more but continued mrs gutch whose pocket flask was empty and who began to wipe away tears 
"'She's treated me hard as Jane Bayliss, "'never allowing me a little comfort "'such as a lady of my age should have. "'And when I hears the two of you "'were talking this morning, "'the other side of that privet edge, "'thinks I, "'now's the time to have my knife into you, "'my fine madam, "'and I hope I done it.' "'Spargo looked at the editor and the proprietor, "'nodding his head slightly.' He meant them to understand that he had got all he wanted from Mother Gutch. "'What are you going to do, Mrs. Gutch, when you leave here?' he asked. "'You shall be driven straight back to Bayswater, if you like.' "'Which I shall be obliged for, young man,' said Mrs. Gutch, "'and likewise for the first week of the annuity, "'and will call every Saturday for the same at eleven punctual, "'or can be posted to me on a Friday, whichever is agreeable to you, gentlemen.' and having my first week in my purse and being driven to bayswater i shall take my boxes and go to a friend of mine where i shall be hearty welcome shaking the dust of my feet off against jane bayliss and where i've been living with her yes but mrs gutch said spargo with some anxiety if you go back there to-night you'll be very careful not to tell miss bayliss that you've been here and told us all this Mrs. Gutch rose, dignified and composed. "'Young man,' she said, "'you mean well, but you ain't used to dealing with ladies. I can keep my tongue as still as anybody when I like. I wouldn't tell Jane Bayliss my affairs, my new affairs, gentlemen, thanks to you. Not for two annuities paid twice a week.' "'Take Mrs. Gutch downstairs, Spargo, and see her all right, and then come to my room,' said the editor. "'And don't you forget, Mrs. Gutch, keep a quiet tongue in your head. "'No more talk, or there'll be no annuities on Saturday mornings.' "'So Spargo took Mother Gutch to the cashier's department "'and paid her her first week's money, "'and he got her a taxicab and paid for it, and saw her depart. "'And then he went to the editor's room, strangely thoughtful. "'The editor and the proprietor were talking, "'but they stopped when Spargo entered.' and looked at him eagerly. "'I think we've done it,' said Spargo quietly. "'What precisely have we found out?' asked the editor. "'A great deal more than I'd anticipated,' answered Spargo. "'And I don't know what fields it doesn't open out. "'If you look back, you'll remember that the only thing found on Marbury's body "'was a scrap of grey paper on which was the name and address. "'Ronald Breton, King's Bench Walk.' "'Well?' "'Breton is a young barrister. "'Also, he writes a bit. "'I've accepted two or three articles of his for our literary page.' "'Well?' "'Further, he is engaged to Miss Aylmore, "'the eldest daughter of Aylmore, "'the Member of Parliament, "'who has been charged at Bow Street today "'with the murder of Marbury.' "'I know. "'Well, what then, Spargo?' "'But?' The most important matter, continued Spargo, speaking very deliberately, is this. That is, taking that old woman's statement to be true, as I personally believe it is, that Breton, as he has told me himself, I have seen a good deal of him, was brought up by a guardian. That guardian is Mr. Septimus Elphick, the barrister. The proprietor and the editor looked at each other, 
their faces wore the expression of men thinking on the same lines and arriving at the same conclusion and the proprietor suddenly turned on spargo with a sharp interrogation you think then spargo nodded i think that mr septimus elphick is the elphick and that breton is the young maitland of whom mrs gutch has been talking he answered the editor got up thrust his hands in his pocket and began to pace the room if that's so he said if that's so the mystery deepens what do you propose to do spargo i think said spargo slowly i think that without telling him anything of what we have learnt i should like to see young breton and get an introduction from him to mr elphick i can make a good excuse for wanting an interview with him if you will leave it in my hands yes yes said the proprietor waving a hand leave it entirely in spargo's hands keep me informed said the editor do what you think it strikes me you're on the track spargo left their presence and going back to his own room still faintly redolent of the personality of mrs gutch got hold of the reporter who had been present at bow street when aylmore was brought up that morning there was nothing new the authorities had merely asked for another remand so far as the reporter knew aylmore had said nothing fresh to anybody spargo went round to the temple and up to ronald breton's chambers he found the young barrister just preparing to leave and looking unusually grave and thoughtful at sight of spargo he turned back from his outer door beckoned the journalist to follow him and led him into an inner room i say spargo he said as he motioned his visitor to take a chair this is becoming something more than serious you know what you told me to do yesterday as regards aylmore to get him to tell all yes said spargo breton shook his head stratton his solicitor you know and i saw him this morning before the police court proceedings he continued i told him of my talk with you i even went as far as to tell him that his daughters had been to the watchman office stratton and i both begged him to take your advice and tell all everything no matter at what cost to his private feelings we pointed out to him the serious nature of the evidence against him how he had damaged himself by not telling the whole truth at once how he had certainly done a great deal to excite suspicion against himself how as the evidence stands at present any jury could scarcely do less than convict him and it was all no good spargo he won't say anything he'll say no more he was adamant i told the entire truth in respect to my dealings with marbury on the night he met his death at the inquest he said over and over again and i shall say nothing further on any consideration if the law likes to hang an innocent man on such evidence as that let it and he persisted in that until we left him spargo i don't know what's to be done and nothing happened at the police court nothing another remand stratton and i saw aylmore again before he was removed he left us with a sort of sardonic remark if you all want to prove me innocent he said find the guilty man well there was a tremendous lot of common sense in that said spargo yes of course but how 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 is it going to be done exclaimed breton are you any nearer is rathbury any nearer 
Is there the slightest clue that will fasten the guilt on anybody else? Spargo gave no answer to these questions. He remained silent a while, apparently thinking. Was Rathbury in court? he suddenly asked. He was, replied Breton. He was there with two or three other men who I suppose were detectives, and seemed to be greatly interested in Aylmore. If I don't see Rathbury tonight, I'll see him in the morning, said Spargo. He rose as if to go, but after lingering a moment, sat down again. Look here, he continued. I don't know how this thing stands in law, but would it be a very weak case against Aylmore if the prosecution couldn't show some motive for his killing Marbury? Breton smiled. There's no necessity to prove motive in murder, he said, but I'll tell you what, Spargo, if the prosecution can show that Aylmore had a motive for getting rid of Marbury, if they can prove that it was to Aylmore's advantage to silence him, why, then, I don't think he's a chance. I see. But so far, no motive, no reason for his killing Marbury has been shown. I know of none. Spargo rose and moved to the door. Well, I'm off, he said. Then, as if he suddenly recollected something, he turned back. "'Oh, by the way,' he said, "'isn't your guardian, Mr. Elphick, a big authority on philately?' "'One of the biggest. Awful enthusiast. "'Do you think he'd tell me a bit about those Australian stamps "'which Marbury showed to Crydeer, the dealer?' "'Certainly he would. Delighted. Here.' "'And Breton scribbled a few words on a card. "'There's his address and a word from me. "'I'll tell you when you can always find him in five nights out of seven. "'At nine o'clock, after he's dined. "'I'd go with you tonight, but I must go to Aylmore's. "'The two girls are in terrible trouble.' "'Give them a message from me,' said Spargo, as they went out together. "'Tell them to keep up their hearts and their courage.'" End of chapter 26「Chapter 27 of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 Mr. Elphick's Chambers Spargo went round again to the temple that night at nine o'clock, asking himself over and over again two questions. The first, how much does Elphick know? The second, how much shall I tell him? The old house in the temple to which he repaired, and in which many a generation of old fogies had lived since the days of Queen Anne, was full of stairs and passages, and as Spargo had forgotten to get the exact number of the set of chambers he wanted, he was obliged to wander about in what was a deserted building. So wandering, he suddenly heard steps, firm, decisive steps, coming up a staircase, which he himself had just climbed. He looked over the banisters, down into the hollow beneath, and there, marching up resolutely, was the figure of a tall, veiled woman, and Spargo suddenly realised, with a sharp quickening of his pulses, that for the second time that day he was beneath one roof with Miss Bayliss. Spargo's mind acted quickly. Knowing what he now knew, from his extraordinary dealings with Mother Gutch, he had no doubt whatever that Miss Bayliss had come to see Mr. Elphick. Come, of course, to tell Mr. Elphick that he, Spargo, had visited her that morning, and that he was on the track of the Maitland's secret history. He had never thought of it before, for he had been busily engaged since the departure of Mother Gutch, 
but naturally miss bayliss and mr elphick would keep in communication with each other at any rate here she was and her destination was surely elphick's chambers and the question for him spargo was what to do what spargo did was to remain in absolute silence motionless tense where he was on the stair and to trust to the chance that the woman did not look up but miss bayliss neither looked up nor down she reached a landing turned along a corridor with decision and marched forward a moment later spargo heard a sharp double knock on a door a moment after that he heard a door heavily shut he knew then that miss bayliss had sought and gained admittance somewhere to find out precisely where that somewhere was drew spargo down to the landing which miss bayliss had just left there was no one about he had not in fact seen a soul since he entered the building accordingly he went along the corridor into which he had seen miss bayliss turn he knew that all the doors in that house were double ones and that the outer oak in each was solid and substantial enough to be soundproof yet as men will under such circumstances he walked softly he said to himself smiling at the thought that he would be sure to start if somebody suddenly opened a door on him but no hand opened any door and at last he came to the end of the corridor and found himself confronting a small board on which was painted in white letters on a black ground mr elphick's chambers having satisfied himself as to his exact whereabouts spargo drew back as quietly as he had come there was a window halfway along the corridor from which he had noticed as he came along one could catch a glimpse of the embankment and the thames to this he withdrew and leaning on the sill looked out and considered matters should he go and if he could gain admittance beard these two conspirators should he wait until the woman came out and let her see that he was on the track should he hide again until she went and then see elphick alone in the end spargo did none of these things immediately he let things slide for the moment he lighted a cigarette and stared at the river and the brown sails and the buildings across on the surrey side ten minutes went by twenty minutes nothing happened then as half-past nine struck from all the neighbouring clocks spargo flung away a second cigarette marched straight down the corridor and knocked boldly on mr elphick's door greatly to spargo's surprise the door was opened before there was any necessity to knock again and there calmly confronting him a benevolent yet somewhat deprecating expression on his spectacled and placid face stood mr elphick a smoking cap on his head a tasselled smoking jacket over his dress shirt and a short pipe in his hand spargo was taken aback mr elphick apparently was not he held the door well open and motioned the journalist to enter come in mr spargo he said i was expecting you walk forward into my sitting-room spargo much astonished at this reception passed through an ante-room into a handsomely furnished apartment full of books and pictures in spite of the fact that it was still very little past midsummer there was a cheery fire in the grate and on a table set near a roomy armchair was set such creature comforts as a spirit-case a siphon a tumbler and a novel 
from which things Spargo argued that Mr. Elphick had been taking his ease since his dinner. But in another armchair on the opposite side of the hearth was the forbidding figure of Miss Bayliss, blacker, gloomier, more mysterious than ever. She neither spoke nor moved when Spargo entered. She did not even look at him, and Spargo stood staring at her until Mr. Elphick, having closed his doors, touched him on the elbow and motioned him courteously to a seat. "'Yes, I was expecting you, Mr. Spargo,' he said as he resumed his own chair. "'I have been expecting you at any time ever since you took up your investigation of the Marbury affair, in some of the earlier stages of which you saw me. You will remember at the mortuary. But since Miss Bayliss told me twenty minutes ago that you had been to her this morning, I felt sure that it would not be more than a few hours before you would come to me.' "'Why, Mr. Elphick, should you suppose that I should come to you at all?' asked Spargo, now in full possession of his wits. "'Because I felt sure that you would leave no stone unturned, no corner unexplored,' replied Mr. Elphick. "'The curiosity of the modern pressman is insatiable.' Spargo stiffened. "'I have no curiosity, Mr. Elphick,' he said. "'I am charged by my paper to investigate the circumstances of the death of the man,' who was found in Middle Temple Lane, and, if possible, to track his murderer, and— Mr. Elphick laughed slightly and waved his hand. "'My good young gentleman,' he said, "'you exaggerate your own importance. I don't approve of modern journalism, nor of its methods. In your own case you have got hold of some absurd notion that the man John Marbury was in reality one John Maitland, once of Market Milcaster, "'and you have been trying to frighten Miss Bayliss here into—' "'Spargo suddenly rose from his chair. "'There was a certain temper in him which, when once roused, "'led him to straight hitting, and it was roused now. "'He looked the old barrister full in the face. "'Mr. Elphick,' he said, "'you are evidently unaware of all that I know, "'so I will tell you what I will do. "'I will go back to my office, "'and I will write down what I do know.' and give the true and absolute proofs of what I know, and, if you will trouble yourself to read the watchman tomorrow morning, then you, too, will know. "'Dear me, dear me,' said Mr. Elphick banteringly, "'we are so used to ultra-sensational stories from the watchman that—' "'But I am a curious and inquisitive old man, my good young sir, so perhaps you will tell me in a word what it is you do know, eh?' Spargo reflected for a second. Then he bent forward across the table and looked the old barrister straight in the face. "'Yes,' he said quietly. "'I will tell you what I know beyond doubt. I know that the man murdered under the name of John Marbury was, without doubt, John Maitland of Market Milcaster, and that Ronald Breton is his son, whom you took from that woman.' If Spargo had desired a complete revenge for the cavalier fashion in which Mr. Elphick had treated it, he could not have been afforded a more ample one than that offered to him by the old barrister's reception of this news. Mr. Elphick's face not only fell, but changed. His expression of almost sneering contempt was transformed to one clearly resembling abject terror. He dropped his pipe, fell back in his chair, recovered himself, gripped the chair's arms and stared at Spargo, as if the young man had suddenly announced to him that in another minute he must be led to instant execution. 
and Spargo, quick to see his advantage, followed it up. "'That is what I know, Mr. Elphick, and if I choose, all the world shall know it tomorrow morning,' he said firmly. "'Ronald Breton is the son of the murdered man, and Ronald Breton is engaged to be married to the daughter of the man charged with the murder. Do you hear that? It is not a matter of suspicion, or of idea, or of conjecture. It is fact.' Mr. Elphick slowly turned his face to Miss Bayliss. He gasped out a few words. "'You did not tell me this?' Then Spargo, turning to the woman, saw that she too was white to the lips and as frightened as a man. "'I didn't know,' she muttered. "'He didn't tell me. He only told me this morning what I've told you.' Spargo picked up his hat. "'Good night, Mr. Elphick,' he said. But before he could reach the door, the old barrister had leapt from his chair and seized him with trembling hands. Spargo turned and looked at him. He knew then that for some reason or other he had given Mr. Septimus Elphick a thoroughly bad fright. "'Well,' he growled. "'My dear young gentleman,' implored Mr. Elphick, "'don't go.' I'll, I'll do anything for you if you won't go away to print that. I'll, I'll give you a thousand pounds. Spargo shook him off. That's enough, he snarled. Now I am off. What, you try to bribe me? Mr. Elphick wrung his hands. I didn't mean that. Indeed, I didn't, he almost wailed. I, I don't know what I meant. Stay, young gentleman, stay a little and let us... Let us talk. Let me have a word with you, as many words as you please. I implore you. Spargo made a fine pretense of hesitation. If I stay, he said at last, it will only be on the strict condition that you answer, and answer truly, whatever questions I like to ask you. Otherwise... He made another move to the door, and again Mr. Elphick laid beseeching hands on him. Stay! He said, I'll answer anything you like. End of chapter 27「Chapter 28 of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 Of Proved Identity Spargo sat down again in the chair which he had just left, and looked at the two people upon whom his startling announcement had produced such a curious effect, and he recognised, as he looked at them, that, while they were both frightened, they were frightened in different ways. Miss Bayliss had already recovered her composure. She now sat sombre and stern as ever, returning Spargo's look with something of indifferent defiance. He thought he could see that in her mind a certain fear was battling with a certain amount of wonder that he had discovered the secret. It seemed to him that so far as she was concerned, the secret had come to an end. It was as if she said in so many words that now the secret was out, he might do his worst. But upon Mr. Septimus Elphick the effect was very different. He was still trembling from excitement. He groaned as he sank into his chair, and the hand with which he poured out a glass of spirits shook. The glass rattled against his teeth when he raised it to his lips. 
the half-contemptuous fashion of his reception of Spargo had now wholly disappeared. He was a man who had received a shock, and a bad one. And Spargo, watching him keenly, said to himself, "'This man knows a great deal more than, a great deal beyond, the mere fact that Marbury was Maitland, and that Ronald Breton is in reality Maitland's son. He knows something which he never wanted anybody to know, which he firmly believed it impossible anybody ever could know. It was as if he had buried something deep, deep down in the lowest depths, and was as astonished as he was frightened to find that it had at last flung up to the broad light of day. "'I shall wait,' suddenly said Spargo, "'until you are composed, Mr. Elphick. I have no wish to distress you.' but i see of course that the truths which i have told you are of a sort that cause you considerable shall we say fear elphick took another stiff pull at his liquor his hand had grown steadier and the colour was coming back to his face if you will let me explain he said if you will hear what was done for the boy's sake eh that answered spargo is precisely what i wish i can tell you this I am the last man in the world to wish harm of any sort to Mr. Breton. Miss Bayliss relieved her feelings with a scornful sniff. He says that, she exclaimed, addressing the ceiling. He says that, knowing that he means to tell the world in his rag of a paper that Ronald Breton, on whom every care has been lavished, is the son of a scoundrel, an ex-convict, a... Elphick lifted his hand. Hush, hush, he said imploringly. "'Mr. Spargo means well, I am sure. I am convinced. If Mr. Spargo will hear me.' But before Spargo could reply, a loud, insistent knocking came at the outer door. Elphick started nervously, but presently he moved across the room, walking as if he had received a blow, and opened the door. A boy's voice penetrated into the sitting-room. "'If you please, sir, is Mr. Spargo of the watchman here?' He left this address in case he was wanted. Spargo recognised the voice as that of one of the office messenger boys, and jumping up, went to the door. "'What is it, Rawlings?' he said. "'Will you please come back to the office, sir, at once? There's Mr. Rathbury there, and says he must see you instantly.' "'All right,' answered Spargo. "'I'm coming just now.' He motioned the lad away, and turned to Elphick. "'I shall have to go,' he said. "'I may be kept.' "'Now, Mr. Elphick, can I come to see you tomorrow morning?' "'Yes, yes, tomorrow morning,' replied Elphick eagerly. "'Tomorrow morning, certainly, at eleven. Eleven o'clock, that will do?' "'I shall be here at eleven, said Spargo. Eleven sharp.' He was moving away when Elphick caught him by the sleeve. "'A word, just a word,' he said. "'You—you you have not told the—the the boy, Ronald, of what you know. You haven't?' "'I haven't,' replied Spargo. Elphick tightened his grip on Spargo's sleeve. He looked into his face beseechingly. "'Promise me, promise me, Mr. Spargo, that you won't tell him until you have seen me in the morning,' he implored. "'I beg you to promise this.' Spargo hesitated, considering matters. "'Very well, I promise,' he said. "'And you won't print it?' continued Elphick, still clinging to him. "'Say you won't print it to-night.' "'I shall not print it to-night,' answered Spargo. "'That's certain.' 
Elphick released his grip on the young man's arm. "'Come, at eleven tomorrow morning,' he said, and drew back and closed the door. Spargo ran quickly to the office and hurried up to his own room, and there, calmly seated in an easy-chair, smoking a cigar, and reading an evening newspaper, was Rathbury, unconcerned and outwardly as imperturbable as ever. He greeted Spargo with a careless nod and a smile. "'Well,' he said, "'how's things?' Spargo, half breathless, dropped into his desk chair. "'You didn't come here to tell me that,' he said. Rathbury laughed. "'No,' he said, throwing the newspaper aside. "'I didn't. I came to tell you my latest. You're at full liberty to stick it into your paper tonight. It may just as well be known.' "'Well,' said Spargo. Rathbury took his cigar out of his lips and yawned. "'Aylmore's identified,' he said lazily. Spargo sat up sharply. "'Identified?' "'Identified, my son, beyond doubt.' "'But as whom? As what?' exclaimed Spargo. Rathbury laughed. "'He's an old lag, an ex-convict, served his time partly at Dartmoor. "'That, of course, is where he met Maitland or Marbury. Do you see?' clear as noontide now spargo spargo sat drumming his fingers on the desk before him his eyes were fixed on a map of london that hung on the opposite wall his ears heard the throbbing of the printing machines far below but what he really saw was the faces of the two girls what he really heard was the voices of two girls clear as noontide as noontide repeated rathbury with great cheerfulness Spargo came back to the earth of plain and brutal fact. "'What's clear as noontide?' he asked sharply. "'What? Why, the whole thing. Motive, everything,' answered Rathbury. "'Don't you see? Maitland and Aylmore, whose real name is Ainsworth, by the by, met at Dartmoor, probably, or rather certainly, just before Aylmore's release. Aylmore goes abroad, makes money, in time comes back, starts new career gets into parliament becomes big man in time maitland who after his time has also gone abroad also comes back the two meet maitland probably tries to blackmail aylmore or threatens to let folk know that the flourishing mr aylmore m p is an ex-convict result aylmore lures him to the temple and quiets him Pooh! the whole thing's clear as noontide as i say as noontide spargo drummed his fingers again how he asked quietly how came aylmore to be identified my work said rathbury proudly my work my son you see i thought a lot and especially after we'd found out that marbury was maitland you mean after i'd found out remarked spargo rathbury waved his cigar well well it's all the same he said you help me and i help you eh well as i say i thought a considerable lot i thought now where did maitland or marbury know or meet aylmore twenty or twenty-two years ago not in london because we knew maitland never was in london at any rate before his trial and we haven't the least proof that he was in london after and why won't aylmore tell clearly because it must have been in some undesirable place and then all of a sudden it flashed on me in a moment of 
"'What do you writing fellows call those moments, Spargo?' "'Inspiration, I should think,' said Spargo. "'Direct inspiration.' "'That's it. In a moment of direct inspiration, it flashed on me. "'Why, twenty years ago, Maitland was in Dartmoor. "'They must have met there. "'And so we got some old warders who'd been there at that time to come to town, "'and we gave him opportunities to see Aylmore and to study him. "'Of course, he's twenty years older, and he's grown a beard.' but they began to recall him, and then one man remembered that if he was the man they thought, he'd a certain birthmark. And he has. Does Aylmore know that he's been identified? asked Spargo. Rathbury pitched his cigar into the fireplace and laughed. No, he said scornfully. No, he's admitted it. What's the use of standing out against proof like that? He admitted it tonight in my presence, so oh, he knows all right. And what did he say? Rathbury laughed contemptuously. Say? Oh, not much. Pretty much what he said about this affair, that when he was convicted the time before, he was an innocent man. He's certainly a good hand at playing the innocent game. And of what was he convicted? Oh, of course we know all about it now. As soon as we found out who he really was, we had all the particulars turned up. Aylmore, or Ainsworth, Stephen Ainsworth, his name really is, was a man who ran a sort of what they call a mutual benefit society in a town right away up in the north, Cloudhampton, some thirty years ago. He was nominally secretary, but it was really his own affair. He was patronised by the working classes. Cloudhampton's purely artisan population, and they stuck a lot of their brass, as they call it, in it. Then suddenly it came to smash, and there was nothing. He, Ainsworth or Aylmore, pleaded that he was robbed and duped by another man, but the court didn't believe him, and he got seven years. Plain story, you see, Spargo, when it all comes out, eh? All stories are quite plain when they come out, observed Spargo. "'And he kept silence now, I suppose, "'because he didn't want his daughters to know about his past. "'Just so,' agreed Rathbury. "'And I don't know that I blame him. "'He thought, of course, that he'd go scot-free over this Marbury affair. "'But he made his mistake in the initial stages, my boy. "'Oh, yes.' "'Spargo got up from his desk and walked around his room for a few minutes. "'Rathbury, meanwhile, finding and lighting another cigar.' At last Spargo came back and clapped a hand on the detective's shoulder. "'Look here, Rathbury,' he said. "'It's very evident that you're now going on the lines that Aylmore did murder Marbury, eh?' Rathbury looked up, his face showing astonishment. "'After evidence like that?' he exclaimed. "'Why, of course. There's the motive, my son, the motive!' Spargo laughed. "'Rathbury,' he said, "'Aylmore no more murdered Marbury than you did.' "'The detective got up and put on his hat. "'Oh,' he said, "'perhaps you know who did, then?' "'I shall know in a few days,' answered Spargo. "'Rathbury stared wonderingly at him. "'Then he suddenly walked to the door. "'Good night,' he said gruffly. "'Good night, Rathbury,' replied Spargo, "'and sat down at his desk. "'But that night Spargo wrote nothing for the watchman.' All he wrote was a short telegram addressed to Aylmore's daughters. There were only three words on it. 
have no fear. End of chapter 28chapter twenty nine of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty nine the closed doors alone of all the london morning newspapers the watchman appeared next day destitute of sensationalism in respect to the middle temple murder the other daily journals published more or less vivid accounts of the identification of Mr. Stephen Aylmore, M.P., for the Brookminster Division, as the ci-devant Stephen Ainsworth, ex-convict, once upon a time founder and secretary of the Hearth and Home Mutual Benefit Society, the headquarters of which had been at Cloudhampton in Daleshire, the fall of which had involved thousands of honest working folk in terrible distress, if not in absolute ruin. Most of them had raked up Ainsworth's past to considerable journalistic purpose. It had been an easy matter to turn up old files, to recount the fall of the hearth and home, to tell anew the story of the privations of the humble investors whose small hordes had gone in the crash. It had been easy, too, to set out again the history of Ainsworth's arrest, trial, and fate. There was plenty of romance in the story. It was that of a man who by his financial ability had built up a great industrial insurance society, had, as was alleged, converted the large sums entrusted to him to his own purposes, had been detected and punished, had disappeared after his punishment so effectually that no one knew where he had gone, had come back comparatively a few years later, under another name a very rich man and had entered parliament and been in a modest way a public character without any of those who knew him in his new career suspecting that he had once worn a dress liberally ornamented with the broad arrow fine copy excellent copy some of the morning newspapers made a couple of columns of it but the watchman, up to then easily ahead of all its contemporaries in keeping the public informed of all the latest news, in connection with the Marbury affair, contented itself with a brief announcement, for after Rathbury had left him, Spargo had sought his proprietor and his editor, and had sat long in consultation with them, and the result of their talk had been that all the watchman thought fit to tell its readers next morning was contained in a curt paragraph. We understand that Mr. Stephen Aylmore, M.P., who is charged with the murder of John Marbury, or Maitland, in the Temple, on June 21st last, was yesterday afternoon identified by certain officials as Stephen Ainsworth, who was sentenced to a term of penal servitude in connection with the Hearth and Home Mutual Benefit Society funds nearly thirty years ago. Coming down to Fleet Street that morning, Spargo, strolling jauntily along the front of the law courts, encountered a fellow journalist, a man on an opposition newspaper, who grinned at him in a fashion which indicated derision. "'Left behind a bit that rag of yours this morning, Spargo, my boy,' he remarked elegantly. "'Why, you've missed one of the finest opportunities I ever heard of in connection with that Aylmore affair. A miserable paragraph.' "'Why, I worked off a column and a half in hours. "'What were you doing last night, old man?' 
sleeping said spargo and went by with a nod sleeping he left the other staring at him and crossed the road to middle temple lane it was just on the stroke of eleven as he walked up the stairs to mr elphick's chambers precisely eleven as he knocked at the outer door it is seldom that outer doors are closed in a temple at that hour but elphick's door was closed fast enough the night before it had been promptly open but there was no response to spargo's first knock nor to his second nor to his third and half unconsciously he murmured aloud elphick's door is closed it never occurred to spargo to knock again instinct told him that elphick's door was closed because elphick was not there closed because elphick was not going to keep the appointment he turned and walked slowly back along the corridor and just as he reached the head of the stairs ronald breton pale and anxious came running up them and at sight of spargo paused staring questioningly at him as if with a mutual sympathy the two young men shook hands i'm glad you didn't print more than those two or three lines in the watchman this morning said breton it was considerate as for the other papers aylmore assured me last night spargo that though he did serve that term at dartmoor he was innocent enough he was scapegoat for another man who disappeared then as spargo merely nodded he added awkwardly and i'm obliged to you too old chap for sending that wire to the two girls last night it was good of you they want all the comfort they can get poor things but what are you doing here spargo spargo leant against the head of the stairs and folded his hands i came here he said to keep an appointment with mr elphick an appointment which he made when i called upon him as you suggested at nine o'clock the appointment the most important one was for eleven o'clock breton glanced at his watch come on then he said it's well past that now and my guardian's a very martinet in the matter of punctuality but spargo did not move instead he shook his head regarding breton with troubled eyes so am i he answered i was trained to it your guardian isn't there breton not there if he made an appointment for eleven nonsense i never knew him miss an appointment i knocked three times three separate times answered spargo you should have knocked half a dozen times he may have overslept himself he sits up late he and old cardlestone often sit up half the night talking stamps or playing piquet said breton come on you'll see spargo shook his head again he's not there breton he said he's gone breton stared at the journalist as if he had just announced that he had seen mr septimus elphick riding down fleet street on a dromedary he seized spargo's elbow come on he said i have a key to mr elphick's door so that i can go in and out as i like i'll soon show you whether he's gone or not spargo followed the young barrister down the corridor all the same he said meditatively as breton fitted a key to the latch he's not there breton he's off good heavens man i don't know what you're talking about exclaimed breton opening the door and walking into the lobby off where on earth should he be off to when he's made an appointment with you for eleven and hello he had opened the door of the room in which spargo had met elphick and miss bayliss the night before 
and was walking in when he pulled himself up on the threshold with a sharp exclamation. "'Good God!' he cried. "'What? What's all this?' Spargo quietly looked over Breton's shoulder. It needed but one quick glance to show him that much had happened in that quiet room since he had quitted it the night before. There stood the easy-chair in which he had left Elphick. There, close by it, but pushed aside, as if by a hurried hand, was the little table with its spirit-case, its siphon, its glass, in which stale liquid still stood. There was a novel turned face downwards. There, upon the novel, was Elphick's pipe. But the rest of the room was in dire confusion. The drawers of a bureau had been pulled open and never put back papers of all descriptions old legal-looking documents old letters littered the centre table and the floor in one corner of the room a black japanned box had been opened its contents strewn about and the lid left yawning and in the grate and all over the fender there were masses of burned and charred paper it was only too evident that the occupant of the chambers wherever he might have disappeared to had spent some time before his disappearance in destroying a considerable heap of documents and papers, and in such haste that he had not troubled to put matters straight before he went. Breton stared at this scene for a moment in utter consternation. Then he made one step towards an inner door, and Spargo followed him. Together they entered an inner room, a sleeping apartment. There was no one in it, but there were evidences that Elphick had just as hastily packed a bag as he had destroyed his papers. The clothes which Spargo had seen him wearing the previous evening were flung here, there, everywhere. The gorgeous smoking-jacket was tossed unceremoniously in one corner, a dress-shirt in the bosom of which valuable studs still glistened in another. One or two suitcases lay about, as if they had been examined and discarded in favour of something more portable. Here, too, drawers revealing stocks of linen and underclothing had been torn open and left open. Open, too, swung the door of a wardrobe, revealing a quantity of expensive clothing. And Spargo, looking around him, seemed to see all that had happened. The hasty, almost frantic search for, and tearing up and burning off, papers. The hurried change of clothing, of packing necessaries into a bag that could be carried. And then the flight the getting away, the— "'What on earth does all this mean?' exclaimed Breton. "'What is it, Spargo?' "'I mean exactly what I told you,' answered Spargo. "'He's off. Off.' "'Off? But why off? What, my guardian, as quiet an old gentleman as there is in the temple? Off?' cried Breton. "'For what reason, eh?' "'It isn't—' "'Good God, Spargo!' "'It isn't because of anything you said to him last night.' "'I should say it is precisely because of something that I said to him last night,' replied Spargo. "'I was a fool ever to let him out of my sight.' Breton turned on his companion and gasped. "'Out of your sight?' he exclaimed. "'What? Why, you don't mean to say that Mr. Elphick has anything to do with this Marbury affair?' "'For God's sake, Spargo!' Spargo laid a hand on the young barrister's shoulder. "'I'm afraid you'll have to hear a good deal, Breton,' he said. "'I was going to talk to you today in any case. You see—' Before Spargo could say more, a woman, 
bearing the implements which denote the charwoman's profession, entered the room and immediately cried out at what she saw. Breton turned on her almost savagely. "'Here, you,' he said, "'have you seen anything of Mr. Elphick this morning?' The charwoman rolled her eyes and lifted her hands. "'Me, sir? Not a sign of him, sir. "'Which I never comes here much before half-past eleven, sir, "'Mr. Elphick being then gone out to his breakfast. "'I see him here yesterday morning, sir, "'which he was then in his usual state of good health, sir. "'If anything's the matter with him now. "'No, sir, I ain't seen nothing of him. Breton let out another exclamation of impatience. "'You'd better leave all this,' he said. "'Mr. Elphick's evidently gone away in a hurry, "'and you mustn't touch anything here until he comes back. "'I'm going to lock up the chambers. "'If you've a key of them, give it to me.' The charwoman handed over a key, gave her another astonished look at the rooms, and vanished, muttering, and Breton turned to Spargo. "'What do you say?' he demanded. "'I must hear.' a good deal out with it then ma'am for heaven's sake but spargo shook his head not now breton he answered presently i tell you for miss aylmore's sake and your own the first thing to do is to get on your guardian's track we must must i say and at once breton stood staring at spargo for a moment as if he could not credit his own senses then he suddenly motioned spargo out of the room "'Come on,' he said. "'I know who'll know where he is, if anybody does.' "'Who, then?' asked Spargo, as they hurried out. "'Cardlestone,' answered Breton grimly. "'Cardlestone!' End of chapter 29「Chapter 30 of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30 Revelation There was as much bright sunshine that morning in Middle Temple Lane as ever manages to get into it, and some of it was shining in the entry into which Spargo and Breton presently hurried. Full of haste as he was, Breton paused at the foot of the stair. He looked down at the floor and at the wall at the side. "'Wasn't it there?' he said in a low voice, pointing at the place he looked at. "'Wasn't it there, Spargo, just there, that Marbury, or rather Maitland, was found?' "'It was just there,' answered Spargo. "'You saw him?' "'I saw him.' "'Soon afterwards?' "'Immediately after he was found. You know all that, Breton. Why do you ask now?' Breton, who was still staring at the place on which he had fixed his eyes on walking into the entry, shook his head. "'Don't know,' he answered. I but come on, let's see if old Cardlestone can tell us anything. There was another charwoman, armed with pails and buckets outside Cardlestone's door, into which she was just fitting a key. It was evident to Spargo that she knew Breton, for she smiled at him as she opened the door. I don't think Mr Cardlestone'll be in, sir, she said. He's generally gone out to breakfast at this time. Him and Mr Elphick goes together. "'Just see,' said Breton. "'I want to see him if he's in.' The charwoman entered the chambers and immediately screamed. "'Quite so,' remarked Spargo. "'That's what I expected to hear. "'Cardle, you see, Breton, is also off.' Breton made no reply. He rushed after the charwoman with Spargo in close attendance. 
"'Good God! Another!' groaned Breton. If the confusion in Elphick's rooms had been bad, that in Cardlestone's chambers was worse. Here again all the features of the previous scene were repeated. Drawers had been torn open, papers thrown about, the hearth was choked with light ashes, everything was at sixes and sevens. An open door leading into an inner room showed that Cardlestone, like Elphick, had hastily packed a bag. Like Elphick, had changed his clothes and had thrown his discarded garments everywhere into any corner. Spargo began to realise what had taken place. Elphick, having made his own preparations for flight, had come to Cardlestone and had expedited him, and they had fled together. But why? The charwoman sat down in the nearest chair and began to moan and sob. Breton strode forward, across the heaps of papers and miscellaneous objects tossed aside in that hurried search and clearing up into the inner room, and Spargo, looking about him, suddenly caught sight of something lying on the floor, at which he made a sharp clutch. He had just secured it and hurried it into his pocket when Breton came back. "'I don't know what all this means, Spargo,' he said almost wearily. "'I suppose you do. Look here.' he went on, turning to that charwoman. "'Stop that row! That'll do no good, you know. I suppose Mr. Cardlestone's gone away in a hurry. You'd better—what had she better do, Spargo? Leave things exactly as they are, lock up the chambers, and as you're a friend of Mr. Cardlestone's, give you the key,' answered Spargo, with a significant glance. "'Do that now, and let's go. I've something to do.' Once outside, with the startled charwoman gone away, Spargo turned to Breton. "'I'll tell you all I know presently, Breton,' he said. "'In the meantime, I want to find out if the lodge porter saw Mr. Elphick or Mr. Cardlestone leave. I must know where they've gone. If I can only find out. I don't suppose they went on foot.' "'All right,' responded Breton gloomily. "'We'll go and ask. But this is all beyond me.' "'You don't mean to say—' "'Wait a while,' answered Spargo. "'One thing at once,' he continued, as they walked up Middle Temple Lane. "'This is the first thing. "'You ask the porter if he's seen anything of either of them. "'He knows you.' "'The porter, duly interrogated, responded with alacrity. "'Anything of Mr. Elphick this morning, Mr. Breton?' he answered. "'Certainly, sir. "'I got a taxi for Mr. Elphick and Mr. Cardlestone early this morning, soon after seven. Mr. Elphick said they were going to Paris, and they'd breakfast at Charing Cross before the train left. "'Say when they'd be back?' asked Breton, with an assumption of entire carelessness. "'No, sir, Mr. Elphick didn't,' answered the porter. "'But I should say they wouldn't be long, because they'd only got small suitcases with them, such as they'd put a day or two's things in, sir.' "'You're right,' said Breton. He turned away towards Spargo, who had already moved off. "'What next?' he asked. "'Charing Cross, I suppose.' Spargo smiled and shook his head. "'No,' he answered. "'I've no use for Charing Cross. "'They haven't gone to Paris. "'That was all a blind. "'For the present, let's go back to your chambers. "'Then I'll talk to you.' Once within Breton's inner room, with the door closed upon them, Spargo dropped into an easy-chair and looked at the young barrister with earnest attention. "'Breton,' he said, "'I believe we're coming in sight of land. "'You want to save your prospective father-in-law, don't you?' "'Of course,' growled Breton. "'That goes without saying, but—' 
but you may have to make some sacrifices in order to do it said spargo you see sacrifices exclaimed breton what you may have to sacrifice some ideas you may find that you'll not be able to think as well of some people in the future as you have thought of them in the past for instance mr elphick breton's face grew dark speak plainly spargo he said it's best with me very well replied spargo mr elphick then is in some way connected with this affair you mean the murder i mean the murder so is cardlestone of that i'm now dead certain and that's why they're off i startled elphick last night it's evident that he immediately communicated with cardlestone and that they made a rapid exit why why that's what i'm asking you why 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 because they're afraid of something coming out and being afraid their first instinct is to run they've run at the first alarm foolish but instinctive breton who had flung himself into the elbow chair at his desk jumped to his feet and thumped his blotting pad spargo he exclaimed are you telling me that you accuse my guardian and his friend mr cardlestone of being murderers nothing of the sort i am accusing mr elphick and mr cardlestone of knowing more about the murder than they care to tell or want to tell i am also accusing them and especially your guardian of knowing all about maitland alias marbury i made him confess last night that he knew this dead man to be john maitland you did i did and now breton since it's got to come out well have the truth pull yourself together get your nerves ready for you'll have to stand a shock or two but i know what i'm talking about i can prove every word i'm going to say to you and first let me ask you a few questions do you know anything about your parentage nothing beyond what mr elphick has told me and what was that that my parents were old friends of his who died young leaving me unprovided for and that he took me up and looked after me and he's never given you any documentary evidence of any sort to prove the truth of that story never i never questioned his statement why should i you never remember anything of your childhood i mean of any person who was particularly near you in your childhood i remember the people who brought me up from the time i was three years old and i have just a faint shadowy recollection of some woman a tall dark woman i think before that miss bayliss said spargo to himself all right breton he went on aloud i'm going to tell you the truth i'll tell it to you straight out and give you all the explanations afterwards your real name is not breton at all your real name is maitland and you're the only child of the man who was found murdered at the foot of cardlestone's staircase spargo had been wondering how breton would take this and he gazed at him with some anxiety as he got out the last words what would he do what would he say what breton sat down quietly at his desk and looked spargo hard between the eyes prove that to me spargo he said in hard matter-of-fact tones prove it to me every word every word spargo spargo nodded i will every word he answered it's the right thing listen then 
It was a quarter to twelve, Spargo noticed, throwing a glance at the clock outside as he began his story. It was past one when he brought it to an end, and all that time Breton listened with the keenest attention, only asking a question now and then, now and then making a brief note on a sheet of paper which he had drawn to him. "'That's all,' said Spargo at last. "'It's plenty,' observed Breton laconically. He sat staring at his notes for a moment, then he looked up at Spargo. "'What do you really think?' he asked. "'About what?' said Spargo. "'This flight of Elphick's and Cardlestone's. "'I think, as I said, that they knew something which they think may be forced upon them. "'I never saw a man in a greater fright than I saw Elphick in last night, "'and it's evident that Cardlestone shares in that fright, "'or they wouldn't have gone off in this way together.' "'Do you think they know anything of the actual murder?' Spargo shook his head. "'I don't know. Probably. They know something. And look here.' Spargo put his hand in his breast pocket and drew something out which he handed to Breton, who gazed at it curiously. "'What's this?' he demanded. "'Stamps?' "'That, from the description of Crydeer, the stamp dealer, is a sheet of those rare Australian stamps which Maitland had on him, carried on him.' I picked it up just now in Cardlestone's room when you were looking into his bedroom. But that, after all, proves nothing. Those mayn't be the identical stamps, and whether they are or not— What are the probabilities? interrupted Spargo sharply. I believe that those are the stamps which Maitland, your father, had on him, and I want to know how they came to be in Cardlestone's rooms, and I will know. Breton handed the stamps back. "'But the general thing, Spargo,' he said. "'If they didn't murder—I can't realise the thing yet—my father—' "'If they didn't murder your father, they know who did,' exclaimed Spargo. "'Now, then, it's time for more action. Let Elphick and Cardlestone alone for the moment. They'll be tracked easily enough. I want to tackle something else for the moment. How do you get an authority from the government to open a grave?' order from the home secretary which will have to be obtained by showing the very strongest reasons why it should be made good we'll give the reasons i want to have a grave opened a grave opened whose graves the grave of the man chamberlain at market milcaster replied spargo breton started his in heaven's name why he demanded spargo laughed as he got up "'Because I believe it's empty,' he answered. "'Because I believe that Chamberlain is alive, "'and that his other name is Cardlestone.'" End of chapter 30